Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 24th, 2020. So, Thursday night during Sox Machine Live, we were rejoicing the White Sox four-game sweep of the Detroit Tigers as they took care of business against a lesser opponent, but we knew that the White Sox still hadn't passed the test of winning a series against a winning team. Well, no more. Thanks to Jose Abreu having the best week of his major league career, the Chicago White Sox won two out of three against the Chicago Cubs, and they are currently 17-12 and 12 in 2020 as we approach the halfway mark of this shortened season. On this episode, we will recap what happened at Wrigley Field over the weekend and look ahead to the next White Sox series as they stay in Chicago to face the Pittsburgh Pirates for two games. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. As we have been doing uh, for every episode during the season, it's uh, time to take our temperature as far as how we are feeling about this 2020 White Sox squad. After this weekend, how do you feel about them? Do you feel great? Okay, not worried? A little worried? Or panicked? I would say I'm upgraded to okay, not worried. Why not great? Just because the, you know, underlying concerns are still there. Just the, you know, with Yohan Makata looking a little bit like he, Yohan Makata looks like he's almost a, uh, 
You, you ever go into like the city or somewhere where you're not going to be home for a while with like a 30% cell phone charge? Oh, yeah. And then you're just like going from <laughs> place to place and trying to plug in here for five minutes and trying to see if you can turn off location or turn off your your uh, mobile connectivity to just to try to buy the battery life more time so it doesn't die on you. That's kind of how it looks like the White Sox and Moncada are faring right now, just trying to get through the next off day, trying to bunch them together, trying to avoid um, just, you know, kind of leg failure overall and it doesn't look great so I mean you look at that you look at the uh, situation right now in right field with Nomar Mazzara looking really iffy and just the lack of depth underneath those positions so that's what you know keeps me from being overly exuberant but when you see just the depth of the White Sox offense in terms of you know how they can homer from anywhere basically um, that, that that goes a long way to patch things over. I think I'm in the great territory right now like, I feel great about this team, and as far as the way that they've been playing, yes, there are concerns. No team is perfect. Just watching games during the afternoon around Major League Baseball, even this Sunday night, watching the Atlanta Braves and Philadelphia Phillies, I don't get a sense of feeling, Jim. There is no perfect team in this league. Now, not typically... Mm. We would say, well, no team is ever in a perfect situation, but it's pretty clear in like a 162-game schedule, like the Dodgers will run away with it and they'll win the National League West by 15-plus games. Uh, the Minnesota Twins were almost close to a perfect season last year. and the, the really good teams just find a way to flip the switch and they just run by everyone. I don't necessarily see that happening. Like in the in the national in the American League East, Tampa Bay, the ninth pitcher going on the injured list with an arm injury. They just lost their closer. The New York Yankees can field a really good baseball team with the guys on their injured list right now. Mm. Uh, and in the American League West, the Houston Astros won eight games in a row, and they just got swept by San Diego. San Diego looks really good. Uh, but they're still in second place behind the Dodgers, which I would say the Dodgers are the best team uh, in Major League Baseball. And maybe they're the closest to perfect. Uh, but even though the White Sox do have their flaws after this week, I feel pretty great about how they're playing. And I'm excited to see what they'll do in these next five games against Pittsburgh and Kansas City before they get a really big test again as they have to head up to Minneapolis to face the Twins. Yeah, I think that's fair when you look at the greater context of the league and, and just realizing that the White Sox actually have it pretty good. I mean, if you only look at the roster and the White Sox-specific uh, injuries, then I think you can maybe get a little bit down. And when you see that other teams are battling the same problems, and I'm trying to remember which player it was. I think, I think it was James Paxton of the Yankees who said, yeah, the short season or the short ramp-up is the reason why I'm hurt and why other people are hurt. And uh, if that's the case, then yeah, it, it's going to be tricky. And I think if you're looking at like the big postseason picture uh, in terms of the White Sox feeling like, well, not, yeah, maybe not a lock. You never want to use that the White Sox team, given we even know what 23 and 10 amounted to in, in uh -huh. uh, 2016. Uh -huh. But when you look at just the uh -huh. <laughs> final two spots of the American League, and right now the, the Sox are ahead of Houston, but I mean, there's Baltimore and Toronto. And are you really scared of either of those teams? I mean, first of all, the White Sox won't cross paths with either of those teams this year to have any kind of uh, situation where they can lose three games in the standings in a hurry. But 
Are you scared of either of those teams? I'm I'm not really. So I feel like I would say I feel good. Um, you're good to great about their ability to hold down anywhere the spots from six to eight, just because of the lack of challengers. But uh, just when it comes to the White Sox situation and just maybe there being a bad week around the corner, uh, I, I think you know they're in the same spot as some other teams, like the Yankees. Uh, you know, have lost three in a row and. Uh, the Indians had a bit of a stumble and so forth. So there are, I think every team is going to run hot and cold this year, just based on who's available, which, uh, teams are getting a burst of availability they didn't have before. And, 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 and just the weird pressures of this unique season. I will say this. I think the American league will have eight teams with a 500 record or better make the postseason. Yeah. I don't think I can say the same in the national league. The national league may have two teams, with a losing record in the postseason this year. I can see the American League having one just because Baltimore and Toronto are both 500 in the eighth spots, and I don't feel great about either of those teams, but I also don't think anybody underneath them is really going to push for an over 500 spot. So I think that could be just more a battle of attrition there. And I'm with you because Baltimore and Toronto, again, are 500, and then the next closest team to them is Detroit. The Tigers are the next closest team to them, and they are two games behind Toronto and Baltimore. When the Detroit Tigers are currently the 10th seed in the American League, uh, you got to feel really good about the postseason chances for the Chicago White Sox. I'm sure it's going to be in the 90% uh, for the various projections. And again, that's kind of that feeds into <laughs> why I feel great about this team because at this stage, at the halfway mark, Jim. You know, the White Sox are on pace to win 31-plus games in this season. And, uh, you know, they're going to have a winning season and uh, or projected to have a winning season. So success after all of this terrible rebuild and seven straight losing seasons. I know it's only a 60-game season, but at least we'll get to see the White Sox in the postseason. And I know I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit here. Uh, but at least looking through the first half, uh, unless the Texas Rangers uh, have a incredible second half of the season where they win 20 of the last 30 games, uh, I just don't see anyone really threatening the White Sox as far as their spot in the postseason. And now it's kind of fun after this run that the White Sox have had where it's, hey, if they could find a way to play better against the Twins and the Indians, they could get themselves into second place or still get themselves within striking distance of the division. They're in third place right now, but they're only a half game behind Cleveland, Jim, and two games behind the Minnesota Twins, and I feel like that's a good spot for them to be as we enter Mm -hmm. the halfway mark. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're handling themselves well in the division for now. I think, you know, those head-to-head matchups will, uh, you know, they, have, they need to, I guess, reverse their fortunes in that way in order to, I guess, be a little bit more of a threat in the central to me. But, you know, I was looking at, uh, you know, the Baltimore-Toronto thing, and Toronto struck me as a team like, I could be a little bit scared of them because, you know, they have some precocious talent and they, you know, they're on the ascent. And I can see them. They have resources, I think, with Rogers owning them, and they have, uh, you know, a, a pretty good farm system. And and you know, I can see them being one of those teams that can catch an uh, updraft just because of trying hard and young talent and maybe uncertain talent everywhere else. But I clicked on their team page, and sure enough, the uh, the headlines are all pitching injuries. Uh, mm. 
uh, Trent Thornton and uh, Matt Shoemaker and Nate Pearson are all out. So yeah, just every team is as bad as the White Sox have it. Most teams are dealing with the same thing and except for maybe the Indians who uh, can find a 10 strikeout guy wherever no they look, kidding. but even then, their, their pitching shortage is more uh, self-inflicted. Yeah. They, it just grows on trees in the Cleveland farm system. Yeah. Tristan McKenzie. Yeah. Six, five, 165 pounds. Kind of reminds me a little bit as far as a body type, like Chris sale. When Chris sale first joined the white Sox, just as yeah, Brandon McCarthy, yeah, just as lanky, skinny kid and just lights out. Uh, in his major league debut. So congratulations uh, to Tristan McKenzie uh, for striking out 10 in his major league debut. But again, in the American League Central, the White Sox have made it a three-team race for the time being. And I think with him passing, I feel, Jim, a pretty big test winning this series against the Chicago Cubs. I can't argue with the fans that feel great right now about this team and with our Twitter poll, which again, you could follow us on Twitter. We're at socks machine and you could follow me on Twitter at socks machine underscore Josh. 50% of our followers, Jim agree with you. They are okay. Not worried, but we do have 40% that feel great right now. And I think for the 40%, I'm with you guys. We, we should feel great about where the white Sox have put themselves at the halfway point, And it's because they've had a terrific week. Now, speaking of terrific week, the, the White Sox set a new Major League Baseball record for most home runs hit in a week with 27 home runs. That is ridiculous. But nobody had a bigger week or a bigger series against the Chicago Cubs than Jose Abreu, perhaps having the best week of his professional career in the weekend alone against the Chicago Cubs. Remember, we talked about this on Sox Machine Live Abreu was 9-for-18 against Detroit with a home run and six RBIs. Well, he was way better this weekend. He was 7-for-12 with six home runs with four consecutive (laughs) at-bats with a home run at one point and nine RBIs. And, Jim, I have never seen a White Sox hitter dominate a series like that before in my lifetime. Can you think of any other White Sox hitter as far as in our fanship that ever came close to the numbers that Abreu posted? Huh, I mean, not not the home run. I mean, the home run bunch is historic. So when it comes to putting the ball out of the park, no, I can't remember that. I can't remember, like, you know, peak Frank Thomas just being unstoppable and being uh, a force to pitch around. And uh, when he had protection with Julio Franco, that was a beautiful thing. But, you know, when it, just the home run regularity, uh, no, and and... It was cool watching, you know, being on Twitter during the game and seeing folks who don't normally pay attention to the White Sox paying very, very close attention to what Jose Abreu was doing. And I think, you know, given his uh, good soldiership over the course of uh, a lot of losing seasons that were not uh, his fault, it's good to see, you know, him still in it, him still being able to summon his peak powers and uh, and being able to capture everybody's imagination i mean you know i mean we certainly know what he's capable of but even those of us who know what he's capable of of a full season didn't know or didn't see him performing necessarily like like this no i just (laughs) and he had a slow start to the season he really did and i know you're gonna write a a bit more about this on socksmachine.com jim but you know on august 10th after dallas keichel called out the team 
Jose Abreu's season slash line after 17 games was a 250 batting average, on base percentage of 280, and he was slugging only 417. Like, that's not good. And you already played a quarter of your season. Well, now, Jose Abreu's season slash line is a 322 batting average with a 365 on base. He's slugging 669, so his OPS is over 1,000. He's tied for the American League lead in home runs with 11, and he's got 28 RBIs. So in just in a short couple of weeks, if you split the season in, in quarters here, first quarter, not so good, uh, three homers and nine RBIs. His second quarter, uh, he's got eight home runs and 19 RBIs and just a ridiculous slash line to get himself at the halfway point. I'm putting himself in a position, and this is kind of weird to say, but yeah, Jose Abreu right now has put himself in a position to be a potential triple crown winner, Jim. (laughs) Yeah, that would be, uh, I mean, when you look at the short season and and the average and and how much he has left in front of him, that's hard to imagine, especially with Tim Anderson, you know, batting, well, he was in the 390s, now he's down to 350, so maybe he's, he's catching up, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun. I, I was uh, just looking at his his line from today. So one for three with a walk, and that's I think the the other good thing about this is that the walks are also there a little bit, yeah, you know, a little bit more present uh, than they've been before. And that's I think the uh, yeah the difference when he's uh, you know just trying to be the RBI guy versus being a force. I think when he's the RBI guy, just he kind of, you know, sacrifice flies are a feature of his. He's not really driving the ball, just looking to get the ball in a spot where the run can come home and that serves its purpose and all. But when it comes to actually driving runs in, driving himself in, keeping the line moving, there's a little bit more to his game. And, you know, having him draw the walk in his last at bat when he, you know, seemed like he might have been normally in swing mode or normally trying to uh, get the game tied up himself, that was... Good to see, and I think that's a reflection of his, you know, just a little bit better selectivity. It doesn't need to be super selective, but just, you know, just being able to avoid those pitches that he was beating into the ground and turning into double plays is just so big for him, and he was doing that. And just the occasional walk, you know, he's never going to be an OBP monster, but just the ability to take four pitches once in a while uh, is one of those, uh, I guess, uh you know, canaries or, or, or just indicators that let you know that, okay, he's, he's seeing the ball as well as he allows himself to. And that's, that's a plus. And looking at the stat cast numbers. So again, the August 10th, that is when the White Sox lost the game at Detroit and the Dallas Keiko calls, calls out the team uh, for their effort. Jose Abreu's average exit velocity at that stage of the season was at 92 miles per hour. And his average launch angle was about eight degrees. So somewhat hitting the ball hard, but more than not hitting grounders. Since August 11th, Jose Abreu's average exit velocity is 95 miles per hour. Using 2019 league numbers, the league average was 322 with an exit velocity at 95 miles per hour. His average launch angle is now at 11.8 degrees. So Abreu is going from his average of hitting hard grounders to now hitting hard line drives. 
And his launch angle on batted balls of greater than 10 degrees has increased from 29% to 38%. And his exit velocity, as far as the number of batted balls of more than 100 miles per hour, is currently at 30% for Jose Abreu. Mm. So we talked about it on Sox Machine Live in our last episode, Jim, that we noticed that in the Detroit series, Abreu was being a little bit more patient. And you mentioned as far as being the beast at the plate rather than just trying to pick up the cheap RBIs. And I think this is good for him. And it's obviously good for the White Sox offense. If he can kind of shed the mentality that he had last year in 2019, that, oh my gosh, runner on third, no matter what, I have to get this runner in. Now if he can just kind of embrace the fact that, hey, if this guy's going to pitch around me, that's fine. Because I got Aloy Jimenez batting behind me, and I know he can do some damage, and I don't need to carry the weight. And having that type of mentality and being a little bit more patient and finding the pitches you can drive, he could have one of the best weekends we've ever seen in Major League Baseball history. Yeah, two things that that came to mind about Abreu, um, you know, his this past week is one, uh, I really like seeing. Well, I didn't like seeing him get his tower buzzed, but I like seeing him homer after that. <laughs> I, that's one of my favorite things in baseball. I think is when a hitter can get his own revenge on a pitcher who's being a little bit res- irresponsible pitching inside by uh, by turning on one, like when Canerco did it against Pavano. I think is one of my favorite baseball moments in, uh, you know, in just. The hist- in, I wouldn't say in history, but just in terms of like watching the White Sox and like in-game uh, uh, story within the game type situation. I, I love that. And it was one- he got hit in the face, yeah, right? Is that the, the yeah. one that you're talking about? Yep, got knocked okay. down, had the uh, you know, had the mark on his eye and came back, stayed in the game, took Carl Pavano deep and Hawk Harrelson, take that Pavano. Yeah, that was one of my favorite <laughs> Hawk Harrelson calls. And one of those calls that I think, uh, you know, if I were putting together a Frick uh, award highlight reel for Hawk. That would be the one where just that's when I loved when he was engaged and um, you know just on top of the action, telling you how you should feel about it as a White Sox fan. I think that that's one of those uh, calls I remember from Hawk that just summed up what everybody was thinking. Just sweet revenge on Pavano, perfect. You know, uh, so so there's that. I, I love seeing that, and it kind of reminded me of the um, you know uh, Abreu's reaction to Dallas Keuchel's. Uh, call out and Abreu had somewhat of a uh, he downplayed it or I guess downplayed the importance of what Keuchel said and yeah some people saw that as not caring or being indifferent and some people saw it as like we're on top of it you know just (laughs) shrugging it off just uh, saying you know we're aware you know we're we're good Um, you know this is being worked on and uh, certainly his body of work since that suggests that uh, he's caring like it's not for lack of uh uh, not for lack of trying or just uh, accepting adequate or mediocre is good enough. Nope, he's he's engaged. <laughs> so it's uh, uh, yeah, he, you know, he's he's turned that around and made that really a non-story. So that's nice to see as well. Yeah, Jose Abreu for the week was 16 for 30 with seven home runs and 15 RBIs. If he doesn't win Player of the Week, Jim. I I don't know. I don't know who else could be even in the running at this moment for the American League. Yeah, that's fine. I Fernando Tatis Jr. is awesome. Um but yeah, I mean Jose Abreu, terrific week and really came through for the White Sox and again just a juggernaut offensively and helped the White Sox win this series. Now 
with this weekend series, the White Sox hit 12 home runs as a team. So again, Brayu had six of them. Luis Robert had two home runs. Uh, to really get the White Sox offense going in Game 1 and Game 2, he gave the White Sox the lead in both games. Yasmani Grandal had two home runs in the series. Aloy Jimenez had a home run. And Danny Mendick with a home run as well. The team, though, was 4 for 19 with runners in scoring position. Now, when it comes to baseball offense, I prefer home runs, Jim, because it's instant offense. I don't have too many concerns, but do you have any concerns that the White Sox could not manufacture runs using other methods other than hitting home runs? Not when the home runs are so frequent. Just that's a, it's a good percentage of their hits were leaving the yard, and yeah, nobody should complain about that. They, they during their seven game winning streak, they out homered uh, the opponents twenty seven to two. Uh, that's a good way to solve that home run problem you're talking about. You've written about it a few times uh, over the offseason. Yeah. So yeah, when it's a twenty seven to two gap, yeah, that's you know, homer as much as you want. You know, put a put all the runs on the home run tab. That's that's fine. Uh, I think it's maybe a slightly bigger problem, or at least one that is a little bit more evident when you're facing the U Darvishes of the world. And, you know, they're able to throw that uh, slider down away, down away, down away, and just the righties can't lay off it with regularity or can't square it up. Like, you know, whether it's Luis Robert looking overmatched or James McCann uh, pulling off it as well. Like, the you know, that just flummoxed a lot of White Sox hitters. And there are some guys like Shane Bieber, as we've seen, you know, with his cutter that just can own that spot. And the White Sox really have a hard time laying off it as a team. And so sometimes that flares up and you wish they had the ability to draw walks and uh, set up situations more where a single will get it done. But based on the shape of their offense and the... Uh, some patches of their lineup that have problems keeping the line moving, if they can make the line move the entirety by themselves with one swing of the bat, I think that uh, that overcomes a lot. And I think as the, uh, you know, as this season unfolds and as this team tries to get the postseason, you know, right now it was a, a third place team, the projections, a third place team right on the standings, although closer third place teams than the projections indicated that uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're on track to make progress and, 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 you know, threaten a conventional postseason and make the postseason an expanded thing. And, and right now I think that's fine enough. Uh, that's something where, you know, and as they build with an eye towards 2021, they'll probably want to make their lineup a little bit more regression proof. And, you know, if the home run to fly, fly ball rate drops and they have to adjust for that with guys who can uh, get on base and, 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 help create scoring situations without the home run, probably something they want to look into. But for now, uh, where they are in the state of their uh, attempt to contend, uh, that's plenty of progress for now. Yeah, they're going to hit 12 home runs every series. They're going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, I'm not (laughs) expecting them to hit 12 home runs every series. So again, in those situations where they're having a tough time hitting a home run, uh, you're hoping that they can manufacture offense in other ways. But I agree with you, Jim, with the lineup that they currently have in 2020, they're going to have to lean on the home run. And right now they're proving that, yeah, they can slug with the best of them in Major League Baseball. And an update as far as on how well the team is hitting with runners in scoring position. They're now hitting 237 with a 308 on base percentage, slugging 464 as a team. That is really high slugging. 
Uh, so their team OPS is 773. That is 15th in Major League Baseball. So the White Sox are league average when it comes to runners in scoring position. Let's shift from the offense to the pitching real quick. And let's start with the last starter for Sunday, and that's Dylan Cease. He had a tough test. He had to go up against Yu Darvish, which if you didn't watch Yu Darvish, And his other starts prior to the White Sox game, Darvish has been excellent. He is one of the front runners for the National League Cy Young early as far as in 2020. I shouldn't say early anymore. Again, we're at the halfway point of the season. Uh, But you, Darvish, has been lights out. And it's not a shocker that he only allowed one run and struck out 10 White Sox batters. Darvish has been really good. So with that being a tough test... Dylan Cease against his former ball club, I thought pitched really well, Jim, and I saw improvement from on how well he pitched against Detroit in his previous two starts, in which Cease went six innings pitched, allowed four hits, two earned runs, walked three, and struck out five. And there are two critical innings in Cease's start. In the fifth inning, thanks to Yoan Mercado's two errors uh, and a walk, uh, Cease had the bases loaded and nobody out. And he struck out Jason Kipnis, and Tim Anderson turned a fantastic double play to end the threat and not allow a run to score. So Cease pulled off an El Duque uh, in the fourth inning. Uh, But in the sixth inning, so he escapes that jam, and uh, he starts the inning by striking out Anthony Rizzo, so that's good. And Kyle Schwarber homered for the Cubs' only offense, and that was the deciding factor of the ball game. At the time that Cease is pitching the sixth inning, nobody was warming up in the bullpen. And nobody got warmed up in the bullpen until Kyle Schwarber hit his home run. And beat reporters asked Rick Renteria about that after the game. And from Rick Renteria, quote, he was crisp, he was sharp, he was still explosive. There was no need for me to even consider going and getting him. If I had any thought whatsoever that he couldn't manage it, or I expected that one pitch that was driven out of the ballpark. All things being equal, he is one of our guys, and he was throwing the ball really well. Jim, do you agree with Ricky's thinking regarding the sixth inning of the final game of the Cubs and White Sox series? I do not. Um, It it seems like he's imagining a cease who is maybe like second half of 2021 or early 2022, somebody who has pitched you know, 190 plus innings in a full season and has shown the ability to work in the sixth and seventh with regularity. Uh, and, and, you know, that's reason enough to trust him in a situation like that. But for where he is in his career, I don't see him as that guy. And I don't know why Renteria sees him as that guy. I think part of it is positive reinforcement and kind of like the visualization thing. And, um, you know, fake it till you make it and helping them do that. Cause I think if you try to talk them down, like, uh, for a young player, I, I think there's some value in forcing the issue a little bit or, you know, cause I remember like the, the, the example I always come back to is like John Garland under Jerry Manuel versus John Garland under Ozzy Ian. There was like a transition year where Garland, uh, you know, wasn't quite a reliable starter yet, but he, you know, Gian pushed him deeper in the games. Gian tried to, um, you know, learn how to get him out of his own trouble. And it paid off a year after, like it was a tough year. Uh, I think Ian's first year, 2004, but then, you know, 2005 onward, uh, Garland was a credible 200 inning guy. And so I think there's a bit of that involved when it comes to developing a starter. And I understand Renteria might want to, uh, 
you know, not put negative thoughts in his mind or not, don't put Kant in his mind or, uh, any kind of uh, situation where he might outwardly think and maybe Cease will hear that Renteria doesn't think he can do it just because uh, probably not a great thing for, you know, something that's so confidence-based. But uh, yeah, just Renteria hasn't built up enough credibility yet when it comes to uh, leverage. I don't think he's a bad manager of starting pitchers. I don't think he's a wizard. I think he's in between, but just that's the kind of thing uh, that uh, tilts the needle more on the uh, side of uh, skepticism for me and just how he uh, views the role of a starter and, and what starting pitching that isn't yet proven is capable of at this time. Yeah, we defended Rick Renteria a little bit uh, a week ago. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and this is one of those situations where it kind of reminds me of Robin Ventura. In the sense of getting caught with your pants down. Like, okay, so Kyle Schwarber hits that home run. You're now down two to one with one out in the sixth inning. And you have nobody ready to go in the bullpen. So what what would have happened if the floodgates would have opened? And all of a sudden the Cubs put up three more runs before you have somebody ready to go to replace Dylan Cease. Cease would have had thrown five scoreless innings and then had a meltdown in the sixth inning, and then it really, really ruins his day. And he's only focusing on the one bad inning that he had. Like, I understand what he's trying to mm-hmm. attempt to do with the positive reinforcement, but I also think he's still being his stubborn way of, you're a starting pitcher? Well, you're throwing 100 pitches no matter what. Because in game one of this yeah. series, he had Dallas Keuchel throwing 114 pitches in a season where pitchers are getting hurt at an incredible rate. Why are you forcing one of your most dependable starting pitchers to throw that many pitches in a game where you're up by nine runs? Like, Yeah, I think the, the conjunction of those two starts back-to-back is what's confusing because I can see given the amount of innings the bullpen had to cover early that you might want to use some opportunities to, you know, use relievers or use fewer relievers or use uh, the bullpen to cover fewer innings uh, in a, in a pocket of games where you can. So if Keuchel goes 114 pitches in eight innings uh, when you have a, a couple of iffy starting matchups to follow and then two off days the following week, then maybe that's one case where you can indulge yourself. But you know, the, as the weekend goes, Keuchel uh, pitches well. And then, you know, the, the tandem of Reynaldo Lopez and, Gio Gonzalez gets the job done. So the bullpen is basically fully rested by the time Dylan Cease comes around. And you would think that that's your opportunity to manage a bullp- uh, a game aggressively with the bullpen after the fifth inning when Cease does the job of a starter. And that's where I think it's confusing. Uh, the context doesn't really help clarify it at all. And I know that he's trying to do this double-edged sword where he's pushing the young kids but also trying to manage to win games. But at some point, Rick Renteria also needs to prove that he can manage a team to a one to nothing win. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of the tricky things about this season is that it's the first half of a season and also a postseason push. Right. So it, it's, you're trying to get guys up to speed. You're trying to develop guys, uh, especially, you know, a team with young players and trying to coach them through failures. Uh, but yeah, it's also, um, lead situations like this where it feels like they're 
punting winnable game. It's not quite punting. It's there's a reason behind what's happening. It's you know maybe not the you know it, it's not the most uh, well thought out reason, or at least it doesn't prioritize winning that game as much as it does uh, winning a game the way you'd ideally like to win it, which you know really doesn't happen that often. Or you have to figure out plan Bs or ways to. Uh, cobble together uh you know a detour to win the game but yeah that's i think what's tricky about this season i can appreciate the challenge but sometimes i think he just uh there's a a way he wants to win and sometimes he seems like he's content to want to win it that way and will be even a little bit defiant to uh, questions afterwards when it comes to uh second guessing how he's doing it Hmm. Hmm. seems like a team philosophy jim a little bit. <laughs> All right. One last thing about the White Sox starting and pitching. We saw the return of Ronaldo Lopez. He threw three, oh, a little bit more than three innings, three and a third innings. He only allowed one hit, but it, he did allow turned runs. He walked two batters and he struck out four and he was pulled out of the game at the 50 pitch mark. So it was pretty clear that the White Sox had a plan. They only wanted Lopez to throw 50 pitches in his first start back. And then Gio Gonzalez piggybacks from Ronaldo Lopez, and he doesn't allow any runs uh, in his next three and two-third innings and only allows one hit. He did walk three, but he also struck out two. And it kind of gives this idea of, well, maybe this is not the worst idea in the world to have Ronaldo Lopez and Gio Gonzalez work together as maybe a new tag team for White Sox starts. So what do you think about that idea, Jim? I know you wrote a little bit about it on SoxMachine.com on Sunday. It made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> like, like oh, you know, Jose Abreu explodes into this uh, um, you know, behemoth of a hitter. And my favorite moment was a perfectly leveraged Gio Gonzalez. Uh, and just watching two pitchers who are independently flawed like you know know, Lopez is coming off an injury and not sure what he has and even when he has everything uh, going for him physically he's not necessarily a great bet to deliver a quality start then you have Gonzalez who is good for four innings and then after that it's uh, diminishing returns uh, pretty quickly so you have those two guys and, and you just do what the Rays and Yankees and Brewers and A's and all these successful teams do is just uh you make a, uh, uh, you just kind of tape them together. (laughs) So they stand up. Uh, That's what Renteria did. And, uh, you know, he left the bottom of the order for Gonzalez to start his evening the way, you know, an opener does. It wasn't a a pure opener strategy, but it was a, it was the philosophy behind the opener and what makes the opener successful and that you're turning over uh, the bottom of the lineup to a guy who can go three or four innings and, the idea is that you save the worst hitters for, uh, or the worst hitters are the ones who are the first to repeat for that pitcher. So when Gonzalez is, you know, three and two thirds innings and he walks the lefty and David Bodie comes to the plate and everybody was panicking or thinking like Matt Foster's warm, go to Matt Foster against the righty. Well, it's like, yeah, you can do that. And that's a defensible call, but it's also like Gio Gonzalez, who's a credible major league pitcher, who's only in his fourth inning of work facing a nine hitter. <laughs> I trust Gonzalez in that situation. And sure enough, you know, Bodie has a, a good looking swing, but the contact isn't good. You know, and he flies out the left and it worked out. So that was, uh, you know, the, the idea of how to use Gonzalez, you know, which is coming in the third inning or whatever time the bottom of the order comes up and going with him, uh, for 
four or five innings if it happens to work out that way. And that's terrific. So I, I love that Renteria saw and Renteria oversaw uh, Gonzalez being used in what I think is an optimal fashion. It's just more a matter of will he, you know, whether it's Lopez, whether it's Dane Dunning, will he use those guys as openers or, you know, one time through guys uh, versus, you know, guys who are supposed to go five innings or six innings and a hundred pitches. And I think with Lopez, he, you know, he didn't want to uh, save Lopez for that limited of a role. He said like, oh, he's still building up. We'll see how he goes next time. But I'm hoping that, you know, I, I think it makes some sense to build Lopez up and to see if he can be a five inning guy just in case more injuries happen because uh, I think it, you know, the White Sox want to have some guys who can be stretched out to cover a start should emergency strike. But should, you know, the a couple weeks pass and it's like September 10th or something like that and uh, the postseason is in sight and you have to think about how to manage postseason games, how to uh, start leveraging pitchers for must-win games. I would hope that he's more inclined to go back to that because he's seen how it works. He did it himself, and he did it well. You know, it, it's not a matter of he can't. He can. So here's hoping that when he feels comfortable in the pitching depth and how he can arrange it for a series where every game is theoretically a must-win, or at least there are more a higher percentage of must-wins than normal, uh, then he has the ability to manage those guys in that way and, and have those guys respond to that kind of managing. My fear is that he's just going to revert back to his old tendencies, Jim. And as soon as the White Sox deem that Lopez is strong enough to throw 100 pitches, they're going to try to have Lopez throw 100 pitches. I kind of fear that myself, but here's where I'm pulling Renteria and trying to provide positive reinforcement. To what end, though? I, I guess maybe that complaint's not a Rick Renteria complaint. Maybe that's to his bosses of what are we trying to accomplish here? With Ronaldo Lopez, like it, I don't know where yeah, the disconnect I, I, is, but it's. Listen, I, I I think Dylan Cease is a starting pitcher. He's probably a number four or five type of starter. You could find more dependable starting pitchers in free agency that you could help anchor the rotation. Where Cease, if he could turn out really nice starts like he did on Sunday, that's a great, that's a positive. But Ronaldo Lopez, uh, when he started that game, I know the the pitching line looks good. But watching him, it's just like at any moment, this is going to be a disaster and it's going to get ugly. Yeah, I think, well, with Lopez, I think it's fair for the White Sox just to test him. You know, say like, okay, next time 75 pitches, see if you can do it. If it's a disaster, there's something to be learned from that. You know, it's it's a, it's a loss and some people will, uh, will uh, you know, grind their teeth and say that this is just the White Sox making the same mistake all over again. This I wouldn't say that's the same mistake because he's coming back from an injury. You're learning something about his present state that his first start hinted at but didn't quite show. And it's also the kind of thing where, you know, there's hard evidence that maybe he can't go more than three innings of, of decent pitching where he, the, the White Sox are still in a position to win a game. So there's that. I think there's also the idea that, you know, maybe if the White Sox had four solid starters, like if Cease were the fourth guy, then maybe they would be a bit more uh, content with having uh, the fifth spot be the one where they they patch together starters and have them go, you know, three and four or, you know, two and four and then turn it over the bullpen. But I think when, you know, it's, it's Giolito and Keuchel, 
who are solid and then sees who is, you know, he's going to get five innings, six mm-hmm. innings. It's good for him, even if it's not always good for the Sox. That's fine. But then I think just having those two gaps, you know, behind him to where it's perilous should one guy get hurt. And then if something happens to the top three starters, they're even even worse shape. I think that's why they still want to keep somebody stretched out. And, you know, Gonzalez might not be that guy. Dane Dunning could maybe be that guy, although he's somebody they have to be careful with. And then Lopez has been that guy before, but it's been a while since he's been that guy. So all of them have their flaws in trying to push them to be a more reliable five-inning type. And maybe that option just isn't there. But I think as long as uh, there's still you know half a season left and a postseason spot isn't guaranteed, uh, that maybe they're going to want to try to have somebody uh, in position to try to deliver five innings should there be some some dominoes in the rotation. Okay. That makes sense for this season, but next year when we talk in the offseason, Jim, I really don't want to consider Ronaldo Lopez part of the starting rotation. Like, in my mind, my mind is made up. He's coming out of the bullpen. Like, sure, he could be one of those guys that throws two innings, but I, I just I just don't see a starter anymore. I don't, yeah. Yeah, I, like, I don't see him as a long-term fixture. I can't see him being, like, say if they had, like, a wealth of minor league, you know, triple A guys who are just on the cusp of being there. Like, you know, Dane Dunning is there. Um, you know, Jimmy Lambert was there. Uh, but Michael Kopech, when he's back, he should be a guy. So, you know, if they're just using him as a, a temporary fifth starter while getting guys up to speed in an everyday five-day plan, I can tolerate that. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you in terms of big picture. They shouldn't be counting on him to be that guy. And it sucks because go back to our conversations we had after the 2018 season. I was really hopeful for Ronaldo Lopez, but it's just, I, I just don't know. He's not yeah, the a, same guy. Well, it's, it's a limited profile. It's a, it's a, you know, the like deserved run average, you know, B pros pitching metrics, um, you know, other metrics that uh, kind of showed what, his ERA should have been based on the contact he was long and the bats he was missing or you know, the unimpressive rate of bats he was missing pointed to some severe regression. So the threat was always there. I, I hope that his early success was just, you know, rookie success or first full season success where you take it however you can get it. So you don't be picky about a guy trying to get settled in the majors. And then you go from there and see if you can add more depth to the slider or uh, you make it the fastball command more consistent or improve the changeup or something to uh, provide more plans. But just Lopez hasn't been able to be able to attack hitters in more than one way. And maybe that's just who he is. You know, he's given where he came from as a, a low dollar uh, signing out of the uh, Dominican, you know, just, you know, he's not like a top prospect who is a collegiate groomed, uh, you know, drafted pitcher with, you know, three pitches ready to go and fast riser. He's come a long way. So, I mean, uh, that he stalls out as like a, a fringe starter is, you know, no no mark on him. <laughs> He's gone a long way based on his profile. Just might be time for a shift or maybe some kind of, uh, you know, career crisis for him that maybe makes him reinvent himself or gives him incentive to take a chance with his stuff. Well, the White Sox have two days off this week and they will play five games. So next weekend they have a three-game series against the Kansas City Royals. And the midweek series is against the Pittsburgh Pirates. So let's preview that series next after a word from our sponsors. 
From earaches to strep tests, there's Miniclinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's healthier made easier. Visit Miniclinic at CVS today. Services vary by location. See miniclinic.com for details. Whether you're buying a new car or used one, it's a big investment, which is why you should choose Pennzoil Platinum. It helps extend the life of your engine and protect it up to 15 years or 500,000 miles, whichever comes first, guaranteed. That's because Pennzoil's base oil is made from natural gas and 99.5% free from engine clogging impurities. The proof is in the Pennzoil. Enrollment required. Keep your receipts. Other conditions apply. See Pennzoil.com slash warranty for full details. Find it at Firestone Complete Auto Care. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. And as we said before the break, let's go ahead and preview the midweek series as the Chicago White Sox welcome the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pittsburgh Pirates are 7-17, seven and 17, and they are last place in the National League Central. However, they just swept the Milwaukee Brewers. Really surprising uh, weekend series as far as the weekend result for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, but again, at 7-17, seven and 17, they have the worst record uh, in Major League Baseball. So it's the road to Kumar Rocker. Uh, they are currently leading that right now uh, in Major League Baseball. And, of course, Kumar Rocker is a very talented starting pitcher for Vanderbilt University. Uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates have a run differential of negative 31, uh, one of the worst in all of Major League Baseball. And they're currently eight and a half games behind the Chicago Cubs in the National League Central. And looking as far as at the probable pitchers for this series, White Sox will play two games in Chicago against the Pirates, and later this season they'll play two games at Pittsburgh. And on the mound for the White Sox on Tuesday, this is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Lucas Giolito for the White Sox. And on Wednesday, it's a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. It'll be Dallas Keuchel. So it's going to be bang, bang, these two games as far as timing goes. And on the mound for the Pittsburgh Pirates on Tuesday, opposite of Lucas Giolito is left-hander Stephen Brault. And on Wednesday, it'll be right-hander Trevor Williams, which Williams has been pretty good this year. He's got a 3.7 ERA in his three starts in the month of August. He's got a 2.81 ERA. So that's not necessarily going to be an easy game for the White Sox offensively to face Trevor Williams. And with Steven Brault, I thought John Lester was going to pitch well against the White Sox offense. And right now, no left-handed starter is surviving against the Chicago White Sox lineup. So Steven Brault, good luck. But with this being a two-game series, Jim, and again, they're almost being played back-to-back. You got a 7-10 game, and then you play at 1-10 the very next day, and you have Thursday off. We talked about Yohan Mikata earlier, in which he seems sluggish. And if you look at the cell phone battery analogy, he's at 30%. They have the day off on Monday. He can rest. With a left-handed pitcher on the mound... Do you let him rest again and get two days of rest and then try to play him on Wednesday? And then Thursday, of course, being the off day, that's another day of rest. So you can give him three days off in the next four days. I wouldn't mind if they did it. You know, that's a case where, you know, from our distance and not being in the clubhouse, not being privy to conversations between Moncada and Renteria in the training room, that, uh, you know, given just how he has looked and how, uh, you know, I guess his energy level or his uh, body's response level, I suppose, might be a more accurate way to say it. That's less judgmental. Um, you know, it, how much it's varied from game to game that, 
Yeah, you know, based on their success in the opener against John Lester and having Ryan Goins play third and, you know, he didn't factor into the offense, but it didn't matter because they had so much offense from everywhere else. And when you have Adam Engel playing for Nomar Mazzara, presumably, that adds another bat that's more dangerous that wasn't there before. So you can probably get away with Ryan Goins batting uh, at the bottom of the order um, when a lefty is on the mound facing them. So I would not be opposed. And if Mankata starts, I would also not be opposed because... They're probably, you know, with the situation as it is, and, you know, as long as Nick Madrigal is out, and even if he comes back, it's uncertain how good he'll be. Um, just the lack of infield depth on the left side, there probably has to be some ability for Moncada to be able to play at less than 100 or 90%. Like, it's probably going to... Uh, him at, like, 80% might be still better than what the White Sox have behind him, unless they're a very specific use situation. So however the White Sox decide to go about it, whether it's they put him on the injured list, whether they just try to sit him, you know, against lefties or situations where they feel good about the rest of their lineup, that I would have a hard time saying something is a good or bad idea just because his uh, ability to rise to certain physical demands has fluctuated so much. And given, you know, the the abbreviated ramp up you had and, and having COVID that I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess I don't know what to expect myself and I don't, I, I guess I should feel comfortable not knowing because I don't know if it's going to clarify itself anytime soon. Let me throw this hypothetical out to you. Let's say on Monday afternoon, after the intra-squad scrimmage that the White Sox will have at Schaumburg, that it appears that Nick Madrigal is ready to rejoin the team. If Nick Madrigal is ready to rejoin the team, would you feel more comfortable having you on Makata having the day off, knowing that it's Denny Mendek at third base with Madrigal back at second base rather than Ryan Goings playing third? Yeah, I like that better for one game. I think, you know, over the course of an injured list, and I'd feel less sure just because, you know, as we talked about Absolutely. before with, with Madrigal, that, uh, you know, given how little power he has with two healthy shoulders, I'm not going to feel great about his ability to produce with uh, one and a half shoulders. Um, so I, I, if he comes back and when he comes back, I'm, I'm going to have uh, lowered expectations for what I think his bat can produce. So I think that's a, a situation where I think the longer it goes on, Mendick at third, Magical at second, the more it shows why it's untenable. But for a game, I think that's better than goings against the lefty. What do you think is going to be the keys to this series for the White Sox? Uh, Homer 14 (laughs) times for every other opponent's. (laughs) Just continue the status quo. That was what I was thinking. But as a follow-up, if the White Sox lose one of these two games, will you be disappointed? Yeah, I think just because of the pitchers they're rolling out there, you know, that's and, and, you know, there was some talk about, you know, should the White Sox save, uh, you know, a lesser pitcher for the series and for Kansas City and be able to, uh, uh, you know, have pit- better pitchers going against the Twins and line up the rotations for uh, more direct competition with better teams? And I'd say no. <laughs> I'd say beat up, beat up on, the, uh, on, on the strugglers uh, just because everyone counts the same and given just the nature of the schedule. And, you know, when you look at the NL central, that's a lot messier than thought it was going to be entering the season. Like it looked like it was going to be the, one of the deepest divisions in baseball. And right now with Milwaukee having injuries and Pittsburgh 
you know, Pittsburgh is looking like we thought Pittsburgh might, but the Cardinals being sick and Milwaukee struggling now under injuries and Cincinnati not quite getting it together, that uh, that's a case where, you know, there are wins to be had and they kind of, yeah, I think they missed Milwaukee at their low point and St. Louis, you know, that less said about that weekend, the better, but with Pittsburgh, it's just like, yeah, beat up on them. Take a couple wins, <laughs> load up, um, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, excessive force, so be it. It's just, uh, you know, Two wins are two wins, and uh, they, the better they better shape they are before the last week of the season when they play the Indians and the Cubs, the better. Like I'd like, ideally, I'd like that week to be like they're locked in for a postseason spot, and they can manage that with an eye on October. Yeah, I'm with you. Even the week before, too, when they have four games against the Twins and three games against the Reds. I mean, the last two weeks of the season are absolutely brutal for the White Sox as far as schedule-wise goes. So I'm with you, Jim. And when we talk next as far as on Sox Machine Live, which we'll have on August 27th, that's the Thursday. We'll have that Thursday night during the White Sox off day to preview the upcoming Kansas City Royals series as the White Sox will be officially past the halfway mark of the 2020 season. I really hope that we're talking about a 19 and 12 Chicago White Sox team. Um, because if they lose one of these two games, I think that'd be, that'd be pretty disappointing. I mean, it's hard to sweep teams. It really is in baseball, no matter the quality of the team. I didn't, I'm sure Brewers fans thought they were going to have an easy stroll against the Pittsburgh pirates this weekend. And whoops, uh, they get swept. So I hope that the White Sox can avoid that. And I hope they don't start flat on Tuesday, having an off day on Monday, very much on how they just seemed flat in that doubleheader against the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm hoping that the White Sox can avoid that and they can still stay on a tear, especially facing a left-handed starting pitcher on Tuesday. But for White Sox fans, I would not be upset if Yohan Makata is not in the lineup on Tuesday and Rick Renteria decides to give him two days off, and then plays him on Wednesday. I know that will make Ozzie Guillen upset during the pregame show, but I'm asking you to ignore Ozzie Guillen on this point in the pregame show. Uh, <laughs> I think it's largely good advice. Yeah. So to if Ozzie's upset about Mikata not being in the lineup, I, I would not be upset. I would give him the extra day off and then have somebody else, Ryan Goins or if Nick Madrigal can return, uh, have Danny Mendek start at third. I think Danny's done a very good job so far filling in for Nick Magical and flashing more power than I was expecting and probably what the White Sox were expecting out of the second base position uh, with or without Nick Magical. But again, we'll... You mean Danny Med- Medwick? Oh, Danny Medwick. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Danny Medwick. Good going, ESPN. And Nick Giolito. Uh, and Nick... Uh, ESPN. ESPN, ESPN, ESPN. Anyways, again, we'll recap the Pittsburgh Pirates series on August 27th. That is a Thursday on the next edition of Sox Machine Live. And we hope that you guys tune in on the stream on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine or on SoxMachine.com. And again, hopefully we're talking about a 19-12 and 12 Chicago White Sox team before they head into the weekend to face the Kansas City Royals again in 2020. But you had a lot of questions for us this week, so let's go ahead and start answering those next in P.O. Socks. When you rely on the internet for everything... 
You need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Sox Machine and also helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at Patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And Jim is here to answer your guys' questions this week. And the first question that we have in the mailbag comes from Jeff Blum, Jim. And Jeff is asking... Eloy's defense on StatCast, his jump and his route taking are right around league average, but his quote-unquote burst score is terrible. Given that he has slight above average speed, does this tell us that he's not comfortable once the ball is in the air? Shouldn't that be somewhat easy to fix with more reps, or is he doomed to suck forever? I would say I'm bearish on Jimenez's ability to make meaningful progress. I think when it comes to confidence when balls in the air, I think it's something you can develop, but I also think it's something that some players don't develop. Um, you know, just the uh, ability to learn or, or you know, kind of uh, ocular recognition only goes so far, and then it's just uh, a matter of uh, trying to limit damage. And yeah, Jimenez, like his outfield play is not as bad as it was like first half of last year when I just had that ongoing Twitter thread of just embarrassing positions he found himself in. Uh, those became less frequent, but I think he still got the tendency to where, you know, his foot speed isn't bad. Uh, it just, he's got problems, I think, uh, with taking a direct line to balls and, and either direct line in terms of direction he's going or the speed at which he's going. I think he's got a tendency to try to protect against giving up extra bases, like turning a single into a triple, letting a ball get past him. But in doing that, sometimes he plays an out into a single or a single into a double just by taking such a generous rounding route. Uh, and that seems to still be the case. And I think especially when it involves walls or sidewalls or nets or anything like that, I think, uh, you know, just having a couple of those dangerous run-ins with the fence, especially when he has to go back, he kind of feels... Like he he's overcautious in that regard, in which he almost runs back just to find out where the wall is and then adjust from there, which doesn't really help with the route direction. So I think it's a few things going against him. And when you watch like the White Sox running out questionable outfielders in the past, I think there are some guys like Nicky Delmonico. I think is somebody who went from really bad to an acceptable form of below average. Um, just you know, he got more reps and got more comfortable out there and just was a bit more confident about just what balls did when they were, you know, hit at major league height in major league outfield outfielder. So there's that, uh, you know, Diane Vicieto didn't get much better. Carlos Lee got better. Daniel Polka didn't. So I think, uh, you know, there is a case or, or, uh, an amount of time where you run a guy out no matter how bad he looks, because there is the ability to improve with reps. But I think, you know, Jimenez into his second year uh, and not really showing a whole lot of confidence still with the direction he takes. Um, that makes me think like it's not going to get much better anytime soon. And you just hope that Luis Robert takes a lot of the responsibility away from him on one side. And then you just hope that right field improves to where at least if you have two good outfielders and one liability, that's better than they've been in a lot of other years. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your question. And yeah, Louie made that nice catch today on Sunday. 
uh, at the left field wall that I was not expecting him to make. Yeah. So. It's like he's one for two because he get, got t- trapped too close to the wall in the other one. Like, I didn't expect him to make that catch. And I think yeah. it would have taken a great, good to great left fielder to make that catch. But I think a left fielder who's more sure of himself knows to play that carom rather than get caught like he did. Yep, absolutely. So, Jeff, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Derek King. And Derek is asking... Well, I was bit by the COVID bug last week. Derek, I am so sorry, man. Thankfully, my symptoms are mild and I'm not high risk. But I have to say, watching the White Sox mash home runs was some good medicine. So just like we all predicted, Adam Engel has more home runs than Nomar Mazzara and less plate appearances. He's been the superior offensive player this season and he's an elite defender. I know relying on Engel hasn't yielded great results in the past, but how much longer does Rick Renteria trot Mazzara out there? I think it still goes on for a bit just because Engel has a 631 OPS in August. Um, you know, and the numbers against righties are dropping down. He's 706 OPS against righties on the season. So they are dropping down to where he normally is. And, should Angle be a position, you know, whether Mazar gets hurt, whether Rentria just gives up on him to where Angle gets the everyday starts for his defense and, uh, you know, just doesn't really, um, you know, or he more or less looks the same as he's looked uh, the last year or two to where he's not a factor at all against righties and acceptable against lefties. And, yeah, it just, I think, uh, you know, it, it's ultimately net positive just because of the better defense, but... Uh, you know, it's the case where you just kind of get tired of Engel and you get uh, overexposed to him and it feels like it's not making the best of his abilities. And I think there was a, a brief period of time when Mazzara was still new and everybody was uh, excited about him and, and seeing what he could offer to where like Engel was perfectly used and people were happy that he was limited to lefties. And I think should he get in a position where he has to play everything against righties and he's OPSing in the six, then it's like, yeah, it helps, but it's also like just not great. So I think... Uh, there is an incentive or some desire for Renteria and the White Sox to see if there's any hope that Mazzara turns a corner for at least, I would say, like another week or two. Um, just because, uh, given Angle's production against righties, that there isn't that great of a risk to keep playing Mazzara in that situation, especially if you sub him out uh, when the situation calls for it. Sub him out aggressively, either defensively or as a pinch runner. Um yeah, he's he, Mazar has been weird to follow. Just watching him against Darvish, and Darvish rolled, I think, three breaking pitches. Uh, there was a cutter and a slider, and just hovering, uh, you know, groin high, you know, ready to, uh, you know, pull into the bleachers or pull, uh, you know, over the scoreboard or, uh, you know, on, on the right side, and just didn't do it. Just fouled him off. You hit weak grounders. Just, I, I don't know from, you know, the limited time watching him this year, just what pitches he can drive. And I, I think it's, I think my least favorite state when watching a hitter, like watching Avi Garcia, watching Dian Vizio, thinking of like other frustrating hitters who should have had more power than they showed at the White Sox. I at least knew what pitches they could do damage on. It was just, you know, a very limited, like, you know, Vizio was like knee high fastballs, you know, 92 and lower. Uh, it's like, at least I knew what he could do and, and what mistakes could be made or what pitchers might be good matchups for him with Mazar. It's, I don't know what he can drive. And, you know, he's had some luck with grounders. He's drawn a, a few more walks than usual. So his OBP is actually okay right now. And so he's not a complete like zero, 
But, you know, given that he's supposed to be a tall, strapping, power-hitting right fielder, uh, and the White Sox were kind of hoping he would fill that role for next year, uh, yeah, I guess there's some value in not showing that at all, just so you don't tease the White Sox into being that guy next year. But right now, just uh, it is uncomfortable to watch him, and I can see people getting frustrated. I think I'm just more content or at least more... uh, ready to ride out that frustration just because I'm, um, you know, if you turn those at bats over the angle, you're just getting frustrated in a different way. Well, no more Mazar was four for eight this weekend, Jim against the Cubs with a slap single down the line and a 40 footer. <laughs> like you could play uh, a five man infield against him. I think easily. Yeah. Like easily. Five, five, uh, five guys in the outfield, uh, a center fielder and right center, and then a left fielder straight away. I, he, I'm with you. I don't know what he can drive, and the White Sox are not even getting Texas Ranger Nomar Mazzara. Like, this is the worst version of Nomar Mazzara that any projection system could spit out. And he's hitting more like Luis Castillo of the Minnesota Twins back in the day, of the Piranha days, where it slaps singles right now. And this is this is your solution? Like... Yeah, just it, what a trade. What a trade. And I it's it's pretty clear. I mean, if this is what Nomar Mazzara is, then he's a broken player and the White Sox need to move on. Like yeah. I know it's just a, it's a short it's a short sample size. It's a very small sample size, but the dude either is not ready to play this season or he's bad. I, I don't know what it is, Jim. Yeah, and you know, I, I can't blame him if he's not ready to play just because he had strep throat at the end of uh, our what was already a shortened spring training and there are no rehab games to to get back into full game shape. So if this just doesn't happen to be his year because of timing of an illness, you can't really hold that against him. And, and it's, just, it's just more unfortunate than anything. But also, you know, given the track record of the White Sox trying to think they, you know, trying to be, I guess, uh, too clever by half in solving problems and not taking a direct um, money-based approach to solving problems through free agency or something like that, that, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be... We, we've seen players fail this hard for the White Sox before. So that's why you can't completely write it off. Right. But back to as far as the question, I'm kind of half expecting Nomar Mazzara to have the majority of starts of the rest of the season, regardless on how poorly he's, hit, poorly he's hitting. He could have an OPS in the 500s, Jim. And I would still expect Rick Renteria to have him in right field against right-handed starting pitchers. Maybe he doesn't start on Tuesday against Pittsburgh. Maybe that's where Adam Engel does get the start, very he much better. like against John Lester. <laughs> uh, you're right. He better. But I'm still expecting Omar Mazzara to get the majority of starts for the rest of the season. Uh, should we look up how well Nicholas Castellanos has been playing? Is this a good time to do that? Uh, no, it's right, good. We'll skip it. I'll we'll just right. say it's good. Derek, I really hope that everything is okay and that you recover. It sucks that you have COVID at the moment. But again, thank you so much for taking the time to submit a question to us. Our next question comes from David. And David is asking, what are your thoughts on whether quote unquote playoff experience will be as impactful this year for a team like the White Sox if they get in? With no fans, the environment isn't the same, but there are other things that will be important to learn for potential future runs in upcoming years. Yeah, I, I think it helps. I think it's just the 
knowledge of the margin for error, I think is always useful in those situations to where just, you know, it's the best of three, best of five, best of sevens, just one game can swing a series, one pitching matchup that doesn't go your way can swing a series, uh, just unlikely successes, you know, um, you know, heroes and goats, all that sort of thing. That's all still there, even if fans aren't. And, you know, even if you don't consider it a real postseason or if you think that there's going to be like an asterisk or like just a mutual understanding of what this postseason meant, it's still the games still count the same. They still take the same shape and the consequences are still the same. And, you know, there are a lot of winner go home games, uh, you know, one necessary per series. So uh, or at least one per series. So there's that. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the one thing about this off-season, or, or this postseason rather, that I thought was going to be different, and you know, it's kind of a shame we're not going to be able to see it like in a standard postseason, is just the three-better minimum, and what that meant, and you know how that affected managers, and how pitchers were used, and how hit, you know, what kind of pitchers hitters had to face uh, when they, you know, pitchers couldn't be pulled every batter, so uh, that's a something that you know maybe won't be as specific to October this year, maybe the uh, games in October will more closely resemble what we're seeing right now. And so maybe there won't be specific experience to glean from that, but there will be, I think just the, uh, the, the level of focus required, the level of uh, discipline uh, and, and being able to overcome mistakes. I think that's all going to be amplified the way it normally is. And then I think, uh, you know, more so than players, I think managers also benefit, especially like a manager like Rick Renteria, who has not made it to the postseason yet, who is, only managed rebuilding teams up until this year and uh, has had a very different job developing players versus actually putting players in a position to win as in as many games as possible. So, you know, it comes to like leveraging and, you know, using, uh, you know, going to the bullpen earlier than normal and riding your best relievers more often than you normally would and pushing them to the limits. I think that's all new. And we've seen in previous postseasons, like, you know, infamously Buck Showalter with Zach Britton, uh, you know, n- never using him uh, because waiting for a save situation and never arrived. And uh, they lost an elimination game and his best reliever never pitched. Uh, you know, there's an example like that. There's Ned Yost um, in his first October run where he almost got uh, in trouble for being too rigid with bullpen rolls. But uh, the, you know, the uh, Royals mounted to come back and he didn't make that mistake again. So I think uh, even if this postseason is a little bit cheaper than usual and more teams are allowed and the standard for a standard of excellence of teams getting in isn't there, I think there's still like the do or die decisions that are still there for managers to make. And if he makes a mistake like Showalter made this year, you know, it's, yeah, I would say it's going to suck <laughs> and fans will be mad. But it's also like, well, you know, this was a year where they might not have been expected to make the postseason. They got that experience a year early. So maybe that's a case where he can file it away and, and learn from it the following years. And if he doesn't learn from it a second year in a row, then, yeah, that's a problem. But it, there, there is experience to gather just because of the stakes involved, the um, the costliness of a loss and just making sure every player is uh, put in a position to succeed or the weaker players, their flaws hidden as best as possible because the stakes of leverage are just so much higher in October than they are for most of the regular season. And David, to kind of touch on, on top of what Jim brought up, where are they playing the playoff games? Major League Baseball at this moment is contemplating Jim of playing in a bubble for the postseason. 
And, you know, the early rumors are San Diego could be a location, Arlington, Texas, because of their new retractable roof stadium, could be a possible location. And then the Milwaukee-Chicago corridor could be a possibility as far as a bubble because you do have three major league stadiums within 90 minutes of each other uh, that you can use. And I think that would be a fascinating twist on how the postseason would work is now having all the teams congregate as far as the postseason-wise to one bubble so that nobody has home field advantage and it's just whoever bats last in the game uh, will be the deciding factor. That That's something that I'm interested to see on how, if Major League Baseball decides at the last minute, Jim, that they're going to go into a bubble for the postseason. I hope they do. You know, I hope that's workable and I think that's reasonable. You know, I think a full season in bubbles or hubs would have been tough, really tough or impossible. You know, I don't blame baseball for going the way it did just because of the size of the rosters and the uh, amount of games for the amount of teams needed involved and everything like that. Just it, it, it wasn't something that uh, uh, it was a challenge that baseball and, or basketball and hockey didn't have based on them just conducting tournaments. But when it gets down to baseball only needing to conduct tournament formats, then yeah, I think you try to make that as simple as possible, reduce the travel, reduce the exposure, just, you know, try to regulate everything as much as possible the way that they've done and and so far the very successful bubble situations that the NHL and NBA have. I think if they somehow avoid that or don't learn from that at that point, when the situations are a lot closer to each other, then yeah, that'll be a case where um, I I think leadership can be really criticized. Well, David, thank you so much for your question. And it's kind of nice to talk about playoff situations when it comes to the Chicago White Sox on this show. Uh, It's been a long time. Since May of 2016, yes. uh, <laughs> when we were last having conversations like this. But David, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions for us this week in P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to address on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You could also help support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. I got my coffee mug, Jim. It looks terrific. So thank you for that. And, uh, you're welcome. We we still have coffee mugs, correct? Yep. Yep. We're, uh, you know, st- I would say it's still the same situation as before. Like we're added yet another uh, $10 supporter. So that's another one for the list and another one that removes the available stock. But yes, right now, uh, still have a box of freely available, well, not freely, but available uh, mugs for purchase individually. Excellent. So that's another way you could support us as well. We have an e-commerce store now on the website. You can buy yourself the new Socks Machine coffee mug. We'll have shirts soon, as soon as we figure out the whole shipping thing uh, that's been going on with the USPS. That's been kind of a bummer. Uh, that's impacted a lot of people right now, and we are one of those as well. Uh, so hopefully we'll have more stuff, more swag, uh, that if you don't want to support us on Patreon, you can still support us in other ways. But if you like our work and you want more content and you want swag the best place to do it is at patreon.com slash socks machine and that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast thank you so much for listening if you just discovered the socks machine podcast you can listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts 
And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. If you've got a personal auto insurance question, you could talk to a cab driver. Although the policies he recommends might include avoiding the interstate, beating traffic by taking the back roads, and only making left turns when absolutely necessary. Or you could talk to your local GEICO agent, whose policy is to use their expertise to navigate your insurance, finding the best route to help you save money on insurance for your home, car, and more. And as an added bonus, you'll be able to avoid traffic jams and potholes entirely. To find a GEICO agent near you, visit geico.com local. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.